welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to listen to is an audience questions episode. I put out a request for questions on Twitter, and I got a bunch of responses, as well as just some of my posts generally have had some interesting comments, questions, concerns. Just before we get started, a couple of announcements about what's coming up on the podcast. So over the next few months, I've got booked in a number of really good guests. I generally don't announce guests until I've at least recorded the interview, because at least with high-profile people, there's always a danger that you know their schedules won't permit or they'll cancel for whatever reason. So I've been burned before, and I always wait. But I, I think you'll have, I think you'll be excited to to see these people, see, listen to these people. Um, And you'll have definitely heard some of the names of some of the people I've got on. And then what I'm going to do is, because my interviews are quite just spursed out over the next three or four months, I'm just going to alternate. And I'm going to do some episodes just as solo episodes. And then as soon as I record an interview, I'll just release that interview the subsequent week. So if we make reference to current events or something like that, it'll just come out the immediate week. And then for the solo episodes, I'm not going to do big projects like the Machiavelli one or the Ideology one for a little bit, because they they honestly just take up so much time. I love doing them, but I don't think I could do the entire podcast just that. But I've got a number of topics I'd like to take on that I think would be good, short, self-contained episodes, mostly relating to political ideology that follow on from some of the themes that I've explored in my longer series, and that'll be the case of the podcast one-off me episodes dealing with mainly political ideology, and then guest episodes on a variety of things, from moral philosophy to contemporary political events as they unfold, and that'll be the case through to about the end of August. Then in the winter... I might go back and do another solo series, either on the conservative revolution or third-way centrism in the 90s. I haven't decided yet, but some, something to do with the history of ideology um, and do another deep dive on that. And if you have ideas for a big deep dive, send them to me, but I'm not going to be working on that for a, a, at least a little bit. So anyway, yeah. That's what's coming up on the podcast. For now, though, let me introduce uh, myself, and I just have a list of audience questions in front of me. I'm going to see how many I can get through in an hour, and that's going to be the episode. Let's get started. So to begin with, I'm just going to quickly take some of the ones I got on Machiavelli. I did say I invited feedback, and I've loved some of the comments I've got. Some are, like, too long to really go into, but some of them I'm going to pick apart a little bit. A bunch of people, so this is, like, four or five different comments, but a bunch of people essentially said, you know, I now have a completely different 
interpretation of Machiavelli. Um, cool, uh, thanks. I guess that's a compliment. I guess one thing to keep in mind is, as I said, there's a bunch of different Machiavellis. People have read this author as saying basically everything, and I think I, I would just, as a note of caution, say I'm not necessarily claiming that there is one Machiavelli that sort of quote-unquote tracks the real, his, the real, with big quotes, historical Machiavelli. You know, we have a series of texts, and we can int- apply different interpretive methods to the texts, and the method you apply will shape what you get out of it. Now, that's not a purely relativistic view. I think there's better and worse methods. I think there's better and worse outcomes. But, you know, the Put simply, the recipe you follow will affect what dish you end up getting, even if you have the same ingredients. So, I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily saying that this is the final or absolute Machiavelli. It is a construction, not even a reconstruction. I'm not getting the old Machiavelli back. I'm creating something from these sources. The next comment, a few people said this, actually, is they said it was, um, quote, surprisingly radical. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have a liberal side, and I definitely also have a radical side, and I see myself as somewhat ideologically bilingual between the two. And yeah, in this Mackie, in, in the libertarianism series, I was sort of indulging my liberal side, and in this series, I was indulging my radical side, and I was giving a full-throated and unapologetic defence of popular riots and protest movements. But what I was attempting to offer was a different way of intellectualizing that than the frameworks that are normally brought to bear by radicals for intellectualizing and theorizing about the political. Because, yeah, in my heart of hearts, I do sympathize with the radical impulse to, you know, screw the rich, get on the streets, all of that. That is where my heart is. But I do also find some of the ways of thinking about political engagement that are proffered to us by radicals as unsatisfying. So what I'm offering is, if you want to be a radical, and if you want to be really out there um, as an unapologetically confrontational political worldview, which again is something I sympathise with, I think this is a way of thinking about it that... Like I said in the episode, I'm not even sure is right, but I think is interesting, and I think answers some of the central challenges of political engagement in a different and unique way. So I'm offering this as a possible alternative to radical worldviews. You know, you could take a Marxist radical worldview, you could take like a sovereign citizen radical worldview, or, you know, here's option C, you could take this sort of Machiavellian radical worldview. So just because it's like an old and antiquated and Renaissance text, it doesn't mean that the underlying ethos can't be something that's very vivid and confrontational. And let us remember, Machiavelli himself intentionally writes in a way that's counter-expectational. He tells us again and again and again, what you are about to read is going to be shocking. It will shock you. Final one on the Machiavelli one is a few people said 
essentially a few questions revolving around the continuity or the lack thereof or the perceived difference between um, the prince and the discourses. So a few people said, oh, you know, I took him, I, I took Machiavelli as being the guy from The Prince, but now I actually see that there's this other Machiavelli in the discourses. And then one person asked, so are you, you know, the question is essentially, am I saying that the um, Republican Machiavelli is the sort of real one and the princely one isn't? Or is he doing something different in both books? So uh, let me try and sharpen up my answer on this a little bit, because this is like a good college essay question, right? This is something that could come up on like an undergraduate exam or term paper or something, which is like reconcile the princely Machiavelli of the prince with the Republican Machiavelli of the discourses. So let me try and sharpen it. I think they're united um, by a central set of core moral assumptions, and it seems like there's a disjuncture when we look at it through modern moral categories and concepts. But once we peel those away and get back to the underlying values which Machiavelli was appealing to, the two works are broadly coherent. And what makes them coherent is at the heart of it, there's a there's a Latin proverb which is the security of the people is the highest law. And at the heart of it, that idea of security is sort of a foundational moral good for Machiavelli. Because at the end of the day, if the state falls and there's a civil war or you get conquered, then you're all fucked and nothing else really matters. And any other political concerns that you might have are irrelevant in the face of that concern. Anything else you might want to achieve is predicated on there being a stable state that is maintained. Now, that doesn't collapse into a sort of Hobbesian authoritarianism because it's also balanced by this, this central moral value of, of liberty. But that makes sense of why he likes republics. The value of freedom is that ultimately freedom is the best way of achieving long-run security. And you, this, this has the air of a truism to it, right? Even in the modern world, we can sort of say democracies, by and large, with a lot of exceptions, but democracies, by and large, are more stable, they're more peaceful, they're more able to offer security to their citizens than are authoritarian regimes. They're more stable in the moment, and they're more stable over time. So the ideal for Machiavelli is to find some sort of mixed Republican form of government because that will give you security in the long run. It'll give you security both in terms of stability and order and also stability in terms of being able to sort of conquer your neighbours. So that's his argument. But it also applies to the prince because to Machiavelli's worldview. And again, this is surely true historically. The opportunity, the Italian word is occasiano, I screw my Italian accent, but like the occasion, the moment to start a democracy is quite rare. And for most people, most of the time, we're stuck with um, princely rule or autocratic rule or whatever you want to call it. So 
if you are stuck with a prince in the medium run, then the essential thing is for him to maintain his state, for him to maintenos la stato. Um, because, you know, at, you know, while that is still a second best scenario to a republic, you're not always going to have the opportunity to create a republic. So as a medium-run solution, you at least want stable, reliable, dignified, virtuous, or excellent princely rule. So, so to the modern mind, which locates authoritarianism and democracy on separate ends of the spectrum, that might sound a little counterintuitive. But remember that freedom and security are the central values for Machiavelli, and I think the projects of the prince and the discourses are broadly coherent. They're medium and long-run solutions to the same underlying goal, or first-best and second-best solutions to the same goal. Alright, so that's it with Machiavelli. Let's just quickly go through some of the Twitter questions then, in no particular order. Given the massive growth of the federal government since the founding of the US, should we dial back the power of the state given its inefficiency, or is the centralization of power serving a higher moral purpose? Um, yeah, I, I just sort of not sure I agree with the premise of this question. I think it's quite a US-centric perspective. So, the share of the economy occupied by the US federal government is fairly low. It's like 23% or something. If you look at a lot of European nations, it's 50, 60%. I'm not saying we should go that high, but the US is actually quite abnormal in having a fairly small federal government, comparatively speaking, and I'd also caution against equating straightforwardly the size of the state in spending with the overall footprint of the state. You know, states, you know, think of like the medieval state was tiny in terms of like its GDP, but the overall ability it had to come in and torture you or something was very high. So the state has grown in some ways and it's been significantly constrained in others. So we shouldn't buy the libertarian assumption that the size of the state is defined solely by its economic footprint and that necessarily equates to a loss of freedom or sovereignty of the individual. So just overall, in terms of framing, I don't see the US as sort of, to use the conservative term, big government. It just doesn't strike me as that. But is it serving some higher moral purpose? I mean, yeah, I think it was Paul Krugman who said that the US government is essentially a giant insurance company that happens to have an army. So the majority of US federal spending goes on social security, Medicare, programs like that, and the army. Don't necessarily always agree with what the army does, but the other programs are broadly popular with both Democrats and Republicans, and surely have a positive consequentialist utilitarian impact in the world. So I don't know if I'd call it a higher moral purpose, but there definitely is a moral purpose to that. Um... Next question, and this says, still digesting Machiavelli, and this is something that seems to follow on for that. 
is the relationship of politics and labour unions. Seems healthy labour unions would benefit the health of a nation, but it doesn't seem politics agrees much. Why? Possibly a naive question. No, no, I think that's a good question. Um, well, labour unions are disruptive. They can wield power in a way that can be corrupt. And if you go back to, say, the 70s and 80s and so on, particularly in my home country, labour unions, um, if you think about, like, the, the, the big strikes, I'm from the north of England, right, where all of the coal miners went on strikes, but there were other ones, which is like, you know, it's, it's all very well to be for the power of the unions until you can't get the goods that you need. Um, but actually, um, I would take a sort of Machiavellian approach to that and say... The disruption that that caused is a small price to pay for sort of freedom understood in a republican sense as the good of the, you know, the the dignity and self-assertion of the people. Or you can just make a more crude consequentialist case, which I think is still totally valid, and say that, well, unions do tend to have the effect of raising wages and working conditions for workers, um, and they're good for that reason. So why not? Well, because of politics, because of the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions, and, you know, the, the reasons for that are multifold, but I think there's one simple one which shouldn't be discounted for its simplicity, which is the people who own companies and the most sort of affluent and powerful members of our society tend not to like unions very much. That's not conspiratorial. You know, the, the people who have the most power tend not to like unions, and they tend to exercise that power so as to make them go away. And they certainly did during the conservative revolution. And there's lots of other reasons that are sort of societal and ideological. But the truth is that powerful people in our society just don't like unions very much. Um, so there's a few questions next up, and I'll just sort of merge these into one, about postmodernism. So someone says, I've recently been reading more postmodern philosophy. I think it gets a bad rap from many um, who don't understand it. I'd love to hear you or a guest provide a defense. Um, and um, other people... Yeah, the, the, the essential question is, what, am I a postmodernist? And so this is interesting, right? First of all, little aside, if you want to hear me and a guest do um, postmodernism, I highly recommend the interviews I did with Dale Martin. Any of them, all of them, there's like six hours of them in total, but he really is the world's most, you know, like the world's most interesting man. He's like the world's most interesting theologian. So there's a reason I've had that guy on so many times, and he gives a, a very full-throated and unapologetic and eloquent and funny defense of postmodernism. So if you want to hear someone defend it better than me, go to that. For me personally, the irony is I've always seen myself as a stone-cold empiricist. I see myself as having a, a primarily analytic mode of reasoning. I see myself as 
aspiring, if not succeeding, but aspiring to rationally understand the world. And I see a lot of what I say as straightforward descriptions of the world, or I'll be more cautious. What, from my perspective, seem to me to be the most reasonable and the most, the best evidenced descriptions of the world. So why is it that I keep on getting called a postmodernist? And I've sort of wanted to push back on this and say, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely not. There's no one further towards the analytic end of philosophy than me. But thinking about it, I think I can think of at least two big instances in which I clearly am. Um, I'm saying things that are going to sound like really out there postmodernism. The first is that I take the idea of essential contestability really seriously, and almost every interview I do and every discussion that I have is underlaid by that. So essential contestability is the idea that some concepts, some terms, some values... Um, by their nature, will always be contested. They'll always be debated. Their meaning will always be fought over in everyday speech. Um, And examples of this are political value terms like freedom, fairness, justice, politics itself. And that there's going to be rival competing descriptions of those terms. No, freedom means this, says the liberal. No, no, it doesn't. Freedom means that, says the libertarian. And even those rival descriptions will themselves be internally complex and have different elements within them. And that because the only way we can assess the claims there is by reference to other essentially contestable concepts. That debate will continue for as long as there are human beings communicating to each other through language. The concepts might change, and our you know particular preferred conceptions will change, but that they will be this contestation is ineliminatable. Now, to my mind, that is just a description of the world. That is me looking at what political discourse tends to be and trying to just describe it in the most straightforward, honest, accurate way that I can. It's, it's, it's an objective, not a subjective claim to me. Now, that doesn't mean, and I think what people hear me as saying here, is that there are no right answers. I actually absolutely hate that statement because there's no right answers kind of implies that it's all just wrong answers to me, and I don't believe that. But as Wittgenstein tells us, don't think, look. And when I talk about essential contestability, I, I... I'm just describing the world. Now, that has a further consequence, which it means any empirical work that we do within the social sciences will be itself predicated upon contestable value judgments, and we will necessarily have to make contestable values judgments before we even set about the task of, compl- of of collecting data. And again, that makes me sound like 
I'm saying something all woolly and hippie and like, oh yeah, numbers, man, they're not real. No, numbers are very real, right? These are truths of the most fundamental kind. Mathematical truths are truths of the most fundamental kind. But in order to apply mathematical and statistical tools to the social and political realm, we will necessarily have to make values judgments. Why? Because we have to have an object of study, and the object of study will often be necessarily essentially contestable. So I talked in my episode called What is Ideology with two different scholars of ideology, um, and I made the point that in order to measure ideology empirically, you have to make a judgment as to what ideology is. And so, in doing so, I have to select from a variety of different competing and mutually irreconcilable conceptions of that concept. Is ideology a spectrum? If so, what's on the spectrum? What defines its poles? Does it have one axis or two? Or is it a set of concepts, right? I have to make that judgment about which interpretation of that essentially contestable concept I use before I even go out and start collecting data. And there's no way out of that. Even if I don't think about it consciously, I just go with you know whatever conception the last researcher did. I'm not escaping the value judgment. Um, ideology is big and it's complicated, but let, let's take a more mundane example. Um, poverty. So obviously there are value judgments to be made about what is an acceptable level of poverty, how far should alleviating poverty be be a moral priority vis-a-vis -vis other goals. You can have all those political philosophy questions, right? But then let's just take a more mundane nuts and bolts. What is the American poverty rate, right? And if your answer to that is like, oh, well, it's 16%, that is the right answer. I have given you something that is uncoupled from these sorts of like value judgments that you're talking about. I just think that's wrong, and here's why. Say I go out to study the poverty rate, I have to first make an assumption, and that assumption may be implicit, it may be even subconscious, but I have to make an assumption about what poverty is. Poverty is an essentially contestable concept, right? Is poverty absolute? Does poverty mean that you can't get enough food? Is it defined by income or by access to resources? Or is it relative? Does poverty mean that you're in the bottom quintile, or the bottom quarter of a society? Or is it some combination of the two? How far does self-identification count? If someone considers themselves poor, should that factor into our measurement at all? Now, you might have answers to those questions. You might be going, it, it's, it's that one. It's, um, it's relative. Or someone might be saying, well, obviously poverty is absolute. And that's fine. You know, you're allowed to have preferences. You're allowed to have um, opinions within this space. I'm not saying you can't. And I'm not saying there's not better and worse opinions. And if nothing else, some opinions just aren't going to be coherent. If you tell me that the definition of poverty is a round square, that is just a less good answer to that question. But you nonetheless have to make a decision. It's not written in stone by God what this concept means. And so you're going to have to invoke ideology before you even go out and collect data. 
And again, people hear that as as as, as postmodernist and relativistic and woolly. And I wish I had a better way of doing this, um, but I, I feel like that's just a description of the world, as honest as I can give it, and and that's it. And some people find that description of the world very exciting because it, it means that it, it opens up this this foundational hermeneutic interpretive worldview and some people hate it because it seems too fuzzy and they just want x they don't even know what x is but they just want there to be an answer and we can all go home and i actually don't feel that strongly about it either way i have no i have no stake in saying that our approach to the social world must necessarily be interpretive it just seems to me like it must. If, if like, a better way of describing the world opened itself up, I, I would say, well, this seems like a better way of of describing the world. I also, though, I don't, I used to, I no longer have that really, like, hard desire for that there must be a final answer. I think we can give up on that as well. But regardless, what you want to be true here, what your intuitions are about being true, are quite irrelevant. The the world doesn't owe it to you to be intuitive to you. And the social and political world, you know, I think there are better, worse ways of describing it. And understanding that the foundational concepts with which we approach it are essentially contestable is just a better way of describing it. So that's the first case in which I'm a postmodernist. The second case, and that was a long answer, so I'll go I'll do the next one more quickly. But the other way in which I'm a postmodernist is the one outlined um, again in my conversation with Dale Martin, where I don't think we need to be tethered to the modern age. And we can go back, like I did with Machiavelli, and look at pre-modern or early modern thinkers and take their ideas and combine them with modern ideas. Um, so there's lots of examples of that in my conversation with Dale Martin. And if you want more on postmodernism. Um, in that sort of more moral sense, um, I would recommend that. So, okay. Um, so, another Machiavelli one. Um, would you find it defensible to say that we aren't in a democracy? I suspect Machiavelli would say no, although I share Rick Roderick's dismay that America is a taken for granted as a democracy as opposed to an oligarchy masquerading as one. Um, no, in, in Machiavelli's type, typology, the US wouldn't be a democracy, it would be a republic. So to Machiavelli, democracy means, think of ancient Athens with, um, you know, where the, the people as a whole, like 10,000, you know, granted adult male landowners, but, you know, 10,000 people get together and it's just put to a public vote, what we would call plebiscite. That's what Machiavelli has in mind by democracy, the power of the many. A republic is a situation in which there's a balance, um, a balance is a modern liberal word really for that, Um, but but a combination of different types of power. There's some power that's exercised by one person, there's some power that's exercised by a small elite, but there is also that power of the people as a whole that can have an input into the system. Now, I think it's up for grabs whether 
the Machiavellian typology would locate us as an aristocratic, sort of oligarchic, to use the language of the Question Republic, or as a popular republic. I think the jury's still sort of out of on that. But, um, yeah, there's meanings of the word democracy by which even a charitable interpretation of the U.S. isn't um, a a democracy. Now, that's often used by Republicans. Republicans here, sorry, is the the political party to sort of say, to clamp down on democratic power and say we're not meant to have that much opportunity for sort of the popular will to assert itself. I would dispute that. And again, using Machiavelli, I would say where there can be the influence of the many in the politics, even when, perhaps especially when it's disruptive and chaotic and even incoherent, that is an element of power that, when allowed to express itself, helps make the state both free and powerful. So I can see a worldview in which the US is not a democracy, but that increasing and recognising and celebrating the democratic element within it um, is, is still something to be sought. Next question. Systems of government in ancient China and attempting to use an exam system for the purposes of meritocracy and the legacy of that that still remains. Ah, Fascinating. I have never thought about the um, impact of ancient China on our contemporary schooling system. I just don't know enough to talk about ancient China. Um, happy to learn, but um, I don't know enough to say it directly. Let me let me say this about the subject of meritocracy. I think there's a sort of narrative that's become commonplace on the left that's 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 wrong. It's almost completely wrong, although it sounds very intuitive. And the narrative is this: America is sold to us as the land of opportunity where anyone can make it if they try hard. However, that's not true. Most of us try hard, and um, you know it doesn't count for anything. That's the narrative. And I think we've all just sort of told ourselves that meritocracy is a nice idea that hasn't been realized. Um. I sort of disagree on both ends. Meritocracy has been partially realised. It's not that people's intelligence, their capacity to work hard, they're having a particular skill set that our society values. It's not that these count for nothing. These really do tell in people's favour. It is also the case that there are many factors that influence people's lot in life which cannot reasonably be described as meritocratic at all. And the, the, the biggest one is the oldest one, which is the circumstances into which people are born. The, the vast majority, and I'll just you know, paraphrase John Stuart Mill's chapters on socialism here, the vast majority are what they are born to be. But I think there's another side to that, which is the idea that meritocracy is something to be aspired to. Now, it depends how far back you want to go down the line here. Do we 
want to say that something like early childhood education or something, should that count towards our meritocratic evaluation of a person? Because you will find that people who, I mean, John Stuart Mill's an example, right? But people who tend to do exceptional things in life tend to have a lot of investment in their early childhood education. Should that count towards someone's reward? Or should it be what they do in adulthood? Right, Because if you're going to say that to have the same opportunities, you're going to have to have the same opportunities from the very beginning, right? The kid who succeeds in 12th grade was likely the kid who succeeded in 8th grade, was likely the kid who succeeded in 6th grade, so on and so forth. So to have true equal opportunity, you'd have to have circumstances equalised at birth, which means you'd have to have full equality of outcome. Not only that, but you'd probably have to have significant collective interference with how parents raise their children to a much greater violation of the freedoms of the individual and the family than I think any of us are comfortable with. So, if you really wanted a level playing field, I think that would involve a far more authoritarian and aggressive state in terms of equalising opportunity and also equalising the circumstances of raising children um, than I think any of us have really thought about or would desire if we did think about it. But let's just say we could do that and we could do it in a way that would be congruent with the nuclear family and individual freedom, and we really could achieve a system in which the proverbial best and brightest got to go to the best schools, and would it be any the less monstrous that those people who, through no fault of their own, did not have the genes for high intelligence, or the genes, or the biochemical disposition to work hard, that they are then condemned to a life of drudgery, that then they're, through no fault of their own, have to taste all of the boredom and hardship and um, struggles of life, whereas the agreeable and the interesting and the exciting things, they go to people who were privileged to have particular genes? Help me out here. I actually just don't get this. How does that make any type of moral sense? Now, I'll grant you there are certain specialist things for which we want intelligent people, and we will necessarily be selecting in a way that is unfair. You know, we will probably be selecting high IQ people I was going to say to be surgeons and architects, but I've met some very successful surgeons and architects who I hate, to, you know, probably weren't that high IQ. They just had very specialised training, so even then I'm not sure. But I'll grant you there's maybe certain specialised things, right? But, you know, if I think about what I do for a living, where I'm allowed to exercise creativity and manage projects and... You know, should, should those things always go to people who have a particular genetic set of privileges? And conversely, should not having those privileges be a life sentence to stacking shelves? Is this the best 
political utopia we can imagine, wherein some people get nice lives and some people get lives of drudgery based on accident. Someone is going to have to help me understand this, because for the life of me, I don't. And when people talk, you know, the Joe Bidens of the world about, like, the thing that needs to happen is we just sort of need to fix the meritocracy so we even out the unfairness in it. I don't get it. And, like, people talked about the university admissions scandal whereby apparently not just parents of affluent, you know, affluent parents were privileging their children with test preparation and so on. They were just straightforwardly bribing their children's way into elite schools. That's bad. That's very bad. But this system whereby your access to power and wealth and careers and an interesting and excitable life is determined by your ability to jump through arbitrary hoops at age 16 when your brain isn't properly formed yet, this has just never made any type of moral sense to me. You know, we should be aiming for people to have the fullest, most interesting, most valuable and meaningful lives possible, period. Not for people who we think are smart to have that. Anyway, that's my opinion on meritocracy. And let us not forget, meritocracy, the the, the original book that coined the term was a satire it, it, it was never meant, it was intended to, to be um, an explication of an error. So, moving on, we've got a few more in postmodernism, which I covered. Oh, so I've got some on 2020. Um, This was actually from a different Twitter post, but I think it's interesting, and I'll close with this. What do I think Trump's odds of being re-elected are, and who do I think will be his challenger? Let's start with Trump. So, I like making political predictions, and I think I've got a pretty good track record. So, I think a lot of people just sort of predict, like, quote, predict what they think is going to happen. Um... I have no problem predicting things that I don't want to happen. So, for instance, I predicted that I thought Trump in 2016, or at least I said about a week before the election, I think he's going to beat his polls by a couple of points. And given the Electoral College will probably be a favourite to win. I didn't say I I knew he would win. I I think I said I thought he was about a 60-40 favourite, which I'm horrified by the outcome, but I'm, I'm sort of pleased with myself for getting right. The other one I got right, which, I mean, fucking nobody saw coming, was I called Brexit. I, I had a feeling all along that that was going to win. Now, in both of those cases, that was sort of based on, you know, leading in the polls is, you know, two points difference is not the same thing as ten points. It was also just based on a sense of the level of enthusiasm and buy-in from, like, key opinion makers and people like me who have, like, small followings on, you know, social media and so on, people were really excited to vote for Trump. Rightly or wrongly, I mean, I think wrongly, but they were really excited to vote for Trump in a way they simply weren't for Hillary. So, having established my chops as um, a soothsayer, as a prophet of doom, as someone who will Cassandra-like tell you 
unpopular truths. You know, I joke, and I'm being vanglorious. In 2016, I fucking felt like Cassandra. You all know Cassandra, right, in Greek legends, who's, um, gifted with the ability to see the future, but cursed that no one will ever believe her? I felt like that talking to radical, lefty radical after lefty radical and Bernie or Busters, who I personally know, like half a dozen of them, who... We'd go round the block about the efficacy of voting, but really when it came right down to it, they just look at me and say, but you don't really think he can win, do you? And I say, yeah, I think it's quite likely, in fact. And just like, people just couldn't even really understand what I was saying. It's like I'm saying the sun's going to rise purple tomorrow. Like it just wasn't intelligible to them. It was, like, beyond even scorn. They just couldn't understand what I'm saying. And, of course, when Trump did win, I'd already done my fretting and my anxiety and getting worked up about it. Whereas, like, most people I knew were in a state of shock about it for months. Months and months and months. Like I say, it was like the sun had risen and it was a toad, you know? Like, it was like they just couldn't process this. But as, as shocking as Trump is in terms of who he is and the egregious moral insult that his presidency is, in terms of what we know about political science, it's not. You know, you had two very unpopular candidates. They were quite close in the polls. The economy predicted it would be about even money who would win from an incumbent Democratic president. Um, Some of the ideological positioning, this is a bit more of a complicated case, but I think Trump was sort of perceived, wrongly, but I think was perceived as being um, quite extreme as a social conservative, but more moderate as an economic one. And I think Hillary was perceived as sort of being like neoliberal, um, as in like maybe... Uh, socially liberal but economically centrist sort of thing. Now, I'm not sure that's the correct read of those candidates, but I think that was how it was perceived. And that's a positioning that works for the Republican. There's more people in the electorate who are socially conservative but economically liberal than the converse. So for a variety of reasons, when you think about just what you know about political science, it's not crazy that he could win, but people just couldn't understand it. Okay, so I've gone on about how clever I am, right? Um, And I'm joking there. I'm not. I'm literally, I think the reason I got it right is I just took some of the basic axioms of political science and applied them. And I think people conflated how counterintuitive they found the idea of a Trump presidency with how likely it really was. Okay, so I've built it up and I've built it up. What do I think's happening in 2020? Well, with the proviso that it's way too soon to say, blah, blah, blah. I think Trump is a slight, slight underdog for re-election. Now, hang on, I hear people say polling at this stage doesn't have any predictive value, as Nate Silver told us. And... Presidents usually get re-elected, and the economy means he'll get re-elected. 
I don't know about that. Yes, presidents usually get re-elected, but that's based on a very small sample size. And there's evidence that in congressional, senatorial, gubernatorial races, the incumbency advantage has gone down a lot. So, you know, back 20, 30, 40 years ago, it might have been the case that all other things being equal, an incumbent would win by, like, four to six points. Um, I... I think the evidence is quite clear that that's not correct anymore. Now, it might be there's still, like, a one, two-point incumbency advantage, or as opposed to, like, zero. But I don't think that that's, that's the case. And... While a lot of people have said, yes, but Clinton and Reagan came back from being unpopular and whatever to win re-election, well, that is true, but the mechanisms that allowed them to pull it back and win re-election are not available to Trump, or much less likely to be the case for Trump. So, both of those presidents won re-election by the economy improving from an initially bad position, and then making some efforts to pivot towards the centre. Neither of those options are available to Trump. By standard measures, the economy's quite good now, and from what we know about business cycles historically, it's pretty unlikely that it's going to get significantly better. It's quite possible it'll stay where it is, but it's also quite possible it'll get worse. So, None of the probable outcomes with the economy really help Trump improve improve his approval rating. Also, the pivot towards the centre thing. I mean, this is a psychological read, and, you know, we want to be careful with how much weight you place on it. But it's Trump. Like, I just... If Trump tomorrow were to stop tweeting make a good-faith effort to get an infrastructure bill with Democrats, pass something with their support, and then just go away and play golf for the rest of his term, he'd be a favourite to win. I, I just find that really not a plausible outcome. Again, that's a psychological read. You want to be careful how much weight you place in it. But it just... It doesn't... If he had that gear in him, you'd think he'd have pulled it by now, and he hasn't. Maybe he knows more than he's letting on. I don't know, but I don't see it. The other thing is people say, oh, well, head-to-head polling, whatever, that doesn't have any real predictive value. Well, it doesn't if your sort of baseline is history and what happened in elections 20, 30 years ago. But In an environment of increasing partisanship, in an environment of very fixed preferences, and in an environment where an approval rating of the president has been very, very stable, I think the polls now are going to be more predictive than a historical extrapolation would suggest. So while we should be careful, certainly, about extrapolating from polls, I don't think they're of zero value. And you've got a majority of the country that's saying they really can't see voting for him in any circumstances. And let's quickly do one little thing. As people say, oh, well, the polls were wrong about him in 2016, those same ones now. If Trump supporters want to believe that for the entire cycle, then fine. But the polls are actually 
broadly accurate in 2016. They missed by maybe a couple of points. So if Trump's losing in the polls 8 to 10 points, like he is in some of these matchups going into election today, then you know, the the odds of being the polls being wrong by a couple of points are is actually fairly likely. It's about even money. But the odds of them being wrong by ten points are pretty low. And I think it's quite likely that as the, the real head to head campaign gets going, we'll see someone open up a six, eight, ten point lead over Trump. Now, this will depend on who the Democratic nominee is. This will depend on a bunch of things, but I think the Democratic nominee, you know, Trump's approval rating is, what, 41, 42, that's his baseline. I think that's where he'll start. Democratic nominee will probably start at, like, 45, 46, 47, depending on where they are. And then we'll see, right? But there's a mountain for Trump to climb. Now, We know how they're going to climb it. They're going to climb it by going full visceral negative on whoever the Democratic nominee is, and particularly, again, depending on who it is, by portraying them as an ideological extremist and trying to make it a choice selection. So it is possible that through just sheer carpet-bombing negativity... um, and disinformation, that they will claw back those six to seven points... And I'm not saying that incumbency counts for nothing. I'm not saying that the economy counts for nothing. I'm saying I think the economy's largely priced in. I think the economy is the reason Trump has 40% as opposed to 30% approval ratings. And I don't think those ratings are getting any better for him. I think he might be able to cobble together like a 46-47% coalition, which is like his base, plus 6% who are just so disgusted by whatever the attacks on the Democratic nominee are. I think that's entirely possible. But I also think it's entirely possible that we just go another year and a half and the same status quo remains in effect. Or... I think it's entirely possible that the economy deteriorates and Trump's approval slides into the 30s and Republicans start jumping ship. So if I had to put a number on it at this point, 45% odds of re-election for Trump? I don't think that's crazy. If you wanted to tell me it was 40% or even money, I don't think I'd argue too hard. But if you told me he was a clear favourite for re-election, I think you're getting it wrong. And I'm happy to discuss this with some political scientists at some point. But I think what's happening is an overcorrection. People were so wrong about 2016, and they got caught off guard so badly that they're overcorrecting for it. And they're saying... because the, the, But they're not looking at the reasons they were wrong. The reasons they were wrong is they took their credibility, their personal incredulity as a guide over the factors that careful political science would tell us should inform our prediction. That's why they were wrong in 2017, and they've been overcompensating ever since by being massively bullish on populists and, like, um, right-wing radicals, to the point where the people were saying, oh, you never know, Marie Le Pen, she might win in France, it could be like... And 
that was always such horseshit, of course she couldn't win. Like, I would have bet my life on it. But you had, like, nominally serious people saying Marie Le Pen might win in France because they were scolding all of us because they'd had so much egg on their face after Trump. And the message they took from that wasn't, I wasn't very objective. The message they took from that was, like, right-wingers always beat their polls. But Trump had to beat his polls by two points. Marie Le Pen would have had to beat her polls by 35. Even even with a fairly, you know, sober evaluation of what standard of error, you know, is in those things. Like, no, that would be one of the big polling misses of all time. Um, And I just was saying this at the time, like, of course she's not going to win. Of course she's not. And people going, oh, you never know, Trump won. And for reasons that were obviously specious and obviously not understanding how you process evidence in this space. And I think the exact same thing is happening here. I think people saying, oh, Trump is certain to get re-elected. No, he's not. It's maybe 50-50. Like, you know, but it's also, I would argue, like, he might even be a significant underdog, like a 30% underdog. Now, let's be cautious here. The Democrats cannot be complacent. If we have another bloody Bernie or Bust thing, right, if we have significant chunks of people sitting it out, then yeah. But I'll make another prediction. I think that'll be there. I think Bernie Sanders probably won't win the nomination. I'd say maybe 10 to 15% odds, something like that. But I think there'll be a reaction, especially if a woman wins, um, where people will say, he was cheated, I'm sitting it out. But I think it'll be a lot less than last time, and I think there'll be much less patience with it than last time. I think liberals have a lot of sympathy for, for people on that sort of radical non-voting extreme, but I think they won't get the same indulgence that they did in 2016, because in 2016 people thought they could indulge them because there was there was nothing to lose. Trump, it was inconceivable to them that Trump could win. So if a few people vote Jill Stein or whatever, that's fine. I That's not how people are going to see it this time, and I think the social pressure will be very different. So I think Democrats will hold together. Again, it depends who the nominee is. But look, if you start at this point and run the experiment a hundred times, I still think Trump will win 30, 40 of them, right? Some of those roads, you know, the Democratic Party badly fractures. I could be wrong about that. Some of them, they just run a bad campaign and Trump runs quite a good one. That could definitely happen. So look, don't, you know, in a year and a half's time, if Trump does get re-elected, don't come back to me and say, like, you've said this was impossible. No, I think this will happen four in ten times. But if you're telling me that he's certain to win or even a favourite to win, I think you're just overcompensating from last time. In terms of who I think will win the Democratic nomination, I really don't know. Um, Joe Biden's probably the favourite. I, I mean, I've got nothing other than what you guys have, Right. Joe Biden's probably the favourite at this point, but I don't. I wouldn't say he's even money. Like maybe thirty percent chance. 
maybe there's like a bunch of second tier candidates, you know, Harris, Warren, Beto, who are maybe like 10% chance, and then like a bunch of people in the single digits. I just, I don't, I think people are way too confident. I think people are way, way, way too confident about what's going to happen. People are saying Biden's guaranteed to implode. I mean, he could. But also those same people were saying Biden was guaranteed to implode within his first week, and he hasn't yet, right? Some people are saying, um, you know, the same thing about Bernie. And I, I just... I don't see what Bernie's theory of the case is. He's got a hardcore following who love him, but I don't know... I don't know how he builds beyond that, and I think if Elizabeth Warren overtakes him, then he could be in real trouble. Or not. I think there's a hardcore of Bernie voters that won't move either way, but for the people like me, right, who just kind of want to vote for a progressive... Then, and also a lot of people want to vote for a woman, given what happened last time. A lot of people also don't want to vote for a woman. So I think we just really don't know with the Democratic primary. And anyone who says it's certain to be this person is like, dude, there's 20 people running, <laughs> right? Like, um, and none of them has a commanding lead. You know, Biden has something of a lead. So I think anyone who really claims... Um, and then someone said I was giving everyone really low odds because I wasn't really giving anyone above 10% apart maybe from Biden. And it's like, the thing about odds is they have to add up to 100%. So if you're going to give, like, Biden 30 and Bernie 40 and Elizabeth, you know, 20, then, then suddenly you've got no room for the rest of the field. And it's at least plausible one of these other fuckers comes out of nowhere and just your builder Blasio comes in and takes it. You know, that could happen. It's maybe like a 1% chance, but it could happen. So odds have to add up to 100%. And in virtue of that, like, no one's... There's just not that many points to dole out to 20 people. So that's my overall opinion on that. And, you know, it's a year and a half as it goes... You know, I might dabble in a bit of prediction and political science, although this isn't a horse race podcast at all. But that's what I make. That's my opening salvo on what I think is going to happen, what's shaping up to happen in 2020. All right, that was a little over an hour, so let's pause it there. Please do tweet at me more questions or whatever, and I'll take them up from time to time like this. I hope that was interesting, if not too scattered. And, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>